When I was growing up, I remember watching a show Oprah created that compared and contrasted the high school experiences of a black and white teenager living in Illinois. Needless to say, the experiences were very different. Simply put, the suburban experience had everything. The Chicago experience was lacking. The starkest contrast was the building itself and the Olympic-sized pool inside the suburban high school. I remember thinking as a kid, why were those two experiences so vastly different? And the reality is that things have not changed much since then. Big problem. A lot of it has to do with how schools are funded, but big problems require big solutions. And in today's conversation with Dr. Jeremiah Newell, we get to some of those solutions. He also shares how he had a similar experience, except his experience, he didn't watch on his TV. He was there. He contrasted the school that was in his neighborhood with the school his mom cleaned out in the suburbs, and he helped her. But this experience was a gift in that it lit a fire in his belly where he became passionate about education and equity and how we have big problems that require big solutions. He explains in our conversation some very innovative ways that he approaches this issue. We'll start there at the top of this conversation with Jeremiah. Hey, it's Daniel and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. We'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. It's basically like a Fitbit for teachers, helping them be mindful of teacher talk versus student talk. Get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. I believe that school leaders are doing the best they can, but is it possible to be just a little bit better? According to Demetrius, a school leader in California, The best part of the mastermind is the hot seat. I learned so much from the challenges that we all share during the hot seat because the feedback that our members give is so insightful and valuable. Lauren, a principal in Washington, D.C., remarked that the best part of the mastermind is access to tremendous thought partnering. If you would benefit from getting connected to other elite school leaders and would enjoy discussing education and leadership deeply each week, then we welcome your application to the mastermind. Apply today at betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash mastermind. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jeremiah Newell, the founder and CEO of Mayf Public Charter Schools, which has opened the first public charter school in the state of Alabama. He had previously taught middle and high school led innovative secondary school models for disconnected youth, directed secondary school turnaround efforts, and served as a Harvard Fellow for the Rhode Island Department of Education. Jeremiah, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So happy that you're here. And I want to start back when you were in middle school. You know, that's a fun age for so many of us. 
but you told me that's when you became passionate about equity and systemic change. And part of that journey includes an interesting story where you uh, were helping out your mom at her job. What happened there? Oh, absolutely. It's, um, I, I really think as an educator, it's important to go back to kind of where the fire in the belly comes. And, and for me, it was, it was in during that time. So my mom, uh, she worked uh, multiple jobs. She was a single parent. She raised her by herself. And, and one of the jobs that she had was as a custodian at a private school, a very affluent private school here in, in, in the community of Mobile, Alabama, where I'm from. And I would go with her in the evenings because the work was so great that uh, she would always come home so tired. So I would come and help her in the evenings after uh, school to try to get the job done uh, faster so we can, you know, we can both be together in the evenings. And what shocked me about this private school is, is I would you know, go in the classrooms, empty the trash, and vacuum this amazing carpet. I'd never seen carpet in any public school I had attended. You know, clean the you know, restrooms, meet and talk to the teachers. I was just uh, amazed at what wealth can provide in terms of physical facilities, as well as just kind of the spirit of what um, of what it felt like in the in that school. And and what uh, stood out to me is I was in a, a good. Uh, I was lucky. I won a lottery ticket, so to speak, in that I had gotten into the magnet program in our district and was able to go to schools that had you know, high standards that pushed me, they were rigorous, I had good teachers, but it was still nowhere near the level of um, expectation and opportunity that this affluent private school uh, led for me. And so the fire in the belly started right there because I, I saw the differences. And throughout high school, I was vocal in our public schools about uh, in educational inequity based upon, you know, race and where we grow up in neighborhoods, organize other kids around those voices. And before I knew it, as I was graduating high school, I had determined that my direction should be education and not just the act of teaching, but the act of, of change uh, as an as a agent of social change and as an educational change. And that's, that's, what, that's what led me to this place. Thank you for sharing your story there and giving a couple examples, too, of how you expressed your voice and acted as an activist at an early age. For the ruckus maker listening, you know, Jeremiah, these are principals and assistant principals mostly, although we have listeners in other positions within education. You know, how can they think about supporting the youth they serve and helping them express, right, their desire to make the world a more equitable place? Well, I, mean, I think as an, as an educator, we have a responsibility to create the holding environment for young people to make change. Uh, and that doesn't mean directing them to what that change should be. It's literally creating a space where they can learn and grow. And that's what, that's what I had. I had an opportunity to, to sit among other young people, share experiences, and ask the question, is this good enough? And so I think, I think that uh, school leaders can create these con- conditions in a couple of ways. First, it's by having frequent intentional structures to talk to young people. So whether that be lunch with the administrators, whether it's through uh, advisory councils, uh, and if you do an advisory council st- structure, make sure it isn't just the 
uh, top kids, the ones with the good grades, the you know stellar students. Make sure your council reflects the diversity of perspective and performance of the school, because it really is in creating the space for diverse conversation that real change can be created. Learning can happen on multiple uh, ends. And I think the other thing is that when young people elevate an issue, make it a priority to, to help them address it. Uh, don't, don't fix it yourself, uh, enlist them in the process, and also don't ignore it. And I think if we do that, we earn currency with young people that creates a, a learning environment in a school, a higher ed or K-12, that can truly be responsive to youth needs. I appreciate uh, what you shared there. You know, the including all voices, not just uh, top performance students is smart because uh, you want to get a, a good representation of the whole student body. And just because you can play well in a school setting, that doesn't mean that you necessarily had the best ideas. It just means that you figured out how to play the game. And so, yeah, trying to find the expertise. I, I remember at one of the high schools that, you know, I was a part of the leadership team. One of our students who gave everybody the most trouble, you know, anybody, students, teachers, administrators, this guy gave us trouble. And we wanted him to MC a senior sort of send off rally. And you know what the faculty was, some of the faculty's response was like, no, not, not Demetrius, like no way, like, you know, the grades and the attendance. But here's the thing, talk about holding space. He could hold a whole auditorium in the palm of his hand because he was engaging and he was funny and he was super smart. And he, he expressed that through his ability to tell a story, right? Maybe not turning in homework, but definitely t- telling stories. And so you miss that if you exclude some kids. And, and the other thing uh, that's so important that I want to highlight for the ruckus maker listening is act on it, right? So when kids or when staff members or anybody you serve comes with good ideas or concerns or whatever, and you listen attentively, you take notes or whatever, make sure that you take action on what they're sharing. Otherwise, what is your word? You know, what are you good for if you're not doing something about it? So thank you, uh, Jeremiah, for sharing that. I'd like to um, move us on to an idea that you, you, you told me once, which is uh, demography can't be destiny. What do you mean by that? Well, I think at the, at the end of the day, when we look at uh, how education plays out across not only this country, but internationally, for those who have access to, to wealth, to opportunity, their opportunities for educational liberation are greater. And that is counter to the human condition. Every single person on this planet has the capacity to, to learn, to, to be better, on the next day than they were on the day before. And yet there are just systemic inequities that mean that demography often leads to, to folks' destiny. It, for me, I was just, I was lucky again enough to get into a magnet school just by, by sheer lottery, but it should not have been the case. When I look at where my neighbors who didn't get into the program, when I look at my cousins from the same neighborhood, same community where we are, I had the opportunity to move on, to do great things, to get my doctorate from Harvard. And for some folks, 
uh, some of my cousins that, you know, they're, they didn't finish school and, and are still trying to figure it out. Demography cannot be destiny. And I think there are, in, are intentional work that educators have to do to make sure that it happens both at the systems level, but we have the greatest control over what happens in our own school buildings. And we have to have the, the systems and structures in place to make sure that for those who have or need differently, that we're not educating all kids the same way uh, so that they can overcome any barriers that exist for them. And that's our job. If we're not going to do that job, we shouldn't leave buildings, I don't think. Right. And in the bio, you know, we mentioned how you founded the first charter in Alabama. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could expand on that idea of, of offering students what they need, you know, meeting them where they're at. Because I know you do some very interesting things around a, a holistic experience at your school. Yes. I, I went into the charter work uh, not because I was a charter advocate in the sense that I believe that charters are necessarily better than any other type of school. I came to the charter work because as a public educator, I was feeling stymied in my ability to create and design because of the bureaucratic systems that were already in place. And so I started as a tempered radical within the system, teaching and leading and, and trying, and then decided, hey, we can do something different. If, if that means stepping out a little bit, then let's do so. And the school that was the first charter in Alabama that's doing very well here, it's called Excel Day and Evening Academy. It's a, a school that runs from eight to eight, Monday through Thursday, half day on Friday. It's open to uh, high school age students. We're looking for students with Ferris Bueller day out, bored, disconnected, disengaged, fallen behind, dropped out, who, who, for whom the system has also failed. And what we've done is uh, designed a supportive learning environment, intensive therapeutic counseling, uh, competency-based learning that allows us to uh, meet where students are and help them move uh, more rapidly in some areas and slower in others, depending depending on their needs, connected them with internships, post-secondary opportunities, AP classes, and and are pushing them to reimagine their futures. And that work has been just the joy of my life because it means that young people who had given up on the system didn't give up on learning, didn't give up on opportunity, didn't give up on a future. And that's the work we really get a chance to do on a daily basis. And I'm proud that the first charter is focused on that group of young people and that it's in partnership with other schools and other school districts, not in competition. Really appreciate that part of the story because, you know, I think a desire to learn and to be creative and to do meaningful work, you know, that's inherent in everybody. And like you said, the system failed them, but the, these uh, students didn't mean they had turned off to learning and that kind of thing. And so you were able to adjust the system and reimagine uh, what it could look like so that, that kids can thrive. And, and you're seeing that. Absolutely. And, and if, you know, I think it all still t- comes back to that sense of where my fire in the belly comes from. Uh, when I saw learning environments that were different, private versus public, uh, I've traveled internationally and seen other systems, it, it opens your mind to what's possible. And yet I know that given the right conditions, young people can be successful. So that drives me every day, all the way back to that middle school moment with my mom in that private school. How do I create uh, schools that, that uh, create those, those conditions for, for other young people, no matter no matter who they are and, and be vulnerable about the reality that I don't know how to do that 
that it actually takes the community. It takes us rooting in a sense of place. It takes us engaging students and families in the design. It takes us, at, you know, working a vision, but knowing that vision without action is a hallucination. So you've got you've to gotta execute on that vision. It takes those things really driving uh, me. And I think that that that's what I've learned from my experiences with other leaders. And, and that's what I try to impart to other teachers and leaders in our program. And Jeremiah, if you start talking about vision, that's my wheelhouse. We'll turn this into a three-hour epic uh, podcast. And you use some quotes, too, that I, I use quite a bit as well. So uh, thank you. Competency-based models are important to you and in, in, uh, the work that you guys do. So can, can you unpack a bit what that looks like at your school? I can. So competency-based learning is this notion that uh, instead of uh, deciding grades based upon numeric calculations, get more granular about what are the skills that students need to be able to do and what's the continuum of those skills. So students are not going to be at the top level on everything at first. And and so what competency-based learning at Excel allows us to do is, of course, our across our courses, our elective courses, students are able to see their pathway from where they are uh, it may be developing, it may be emerging to what success looks like and take ownership around that. And teachers have conferences and conversations with students about what does it take to go from where you are to the very next level and to the next level and so on. And students are able to defend and define their, their growth in that way. Uh, it's a liberating uh, approach to, to education that really puts the student work in front of them and allow them to really understand where they are. It's not that they just got a 90. What did that, what did that mean? What, if, what is the relationship between that 90 and what they learned? That's where I think education becomes true freedom is when the, the learner can articulate where he or she is going on that trajectory. And competency-based learning is a, has been a great tool to do that. You are definitely sharing a lot about how schools can reimagine uh, the system and their approach to education. I want to continue with this conversation and dig into how we, you've uh, reimagined roles within your building uh, right after this break, where we'll pause here for a message from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by teachers using TeachFX to increase student engagement online and in the classroom during an ongoing pandemic. Hi, we're the third grade team from General Stanford Elementary, and we're here to tell you about our experience with TeachFX. It has been a really eye-opening experience for us this year. We know that students who are highly engaged in the classroom achieve a higher level of success. So we use TeachFX to help us monitor and collect data. TeachFX has really helped us reach our professional goals to pinpoint students that maybe aren't used talking as much, as well as seeing our balance of wait time, group talk time, student talk time, and then teacher talk time across the grade level and kind of discuss with each other, you know, what's working in your classroom versus what might be working in mine. To learn more about using TeachFX to support your teachers with feedback during COVID, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. 
All right. And we're back with Dr. Jeremiah Newell, the founder and CEO of Mayev Public Charter Schools. And we were just talking about uh, how he's built the school. He's changed the system to meet the needs of uh, the kids that he serves. And, and Jeremiah, I'd love to know how you've reimagined the role of uh, teachers and counselors within your building because you're doing some interesting things there. Well, we, we have, we, when we designed our school, we had to ask the question, what does it take to ensure that young people get the daily support, the de- throughout the day support that they need? And one role that we, we reimagine is the role of the traditional school counselor. As you know, in, in, in many schools, you know, there's ratios of one counselor to hundreds of students. I, I remember when I was in high school, I, I, I think I might have seen my counselor once a year. For for and then that was to tell me wh- where I am and 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 where am I going next and tell me what my schedule is going to be next year. That had to change for us because in this day and age, young people need so much guidance. They're receiving so much stimulation from so many places through social media, through you know, and it's just constant. And so being able to determine and process and figure out what's real is a serious challenge of our generation and of this generation. And so what our what we've done is reimagine the role of the of the uh, guidance counselor to the role of the advocate counselor. And we use advocate in that in that original kind of social work context, which is that there is a primary person who is there to know you, to support you, to fight for you, to challenge you. And you've got a person in, in your building, and we actually use a smaller case management model that that has a that allows uh, counselors to be able to see their students on a daily basis, check in with them. We are all at the at the doors in the mornings where our teachers are at their doors as students walk in, and we're constantly looking for images and, and examples of trauma for for experiences with young people that suggest they may be in crisis, and and we're acting throughout the day to respond, to support, to encourage. And what students describe is a change from feeling like they were more of a number, uh, that they might have had a teacher who cared about them, to a whole system of counselors and therapists and, and administrators and teachers who know them and not just know their name, but know their stories, know where they're going encouraging them and pushing them. And that student support system has been the key to us seeing our young people who've stopped going to school to all of a sudden getting right back on track and graduating and going on to two or four year school post-secondary. It's that support system. And so we had to take a step back and say, what does it mean to truly train a child, to, de- to develop a person, to create a village? And we craft that village through our counseling structures at our school. And earlier you mentioned how it takes a village uh, to raise a child. And, and I know that you are focused on building talent from within the community. And that's out of necessity, I believe. Uh, so tell us your approach to developing the skill sets of those that work with you. And we're in Mobile, Alabama. And that is, it is a great place to, to raise a family. It's a, it's a you know, quiet, supportive community, but it's certainly not a talent hub. And so we have to do the work ourselves. But I think that's actually the right way to go about school design. Because education is a communal process, the community has to own that process. And and that starts with who gets to be in front of kids on a daily basis. So our teachers are are, are credentialed, they're well-trained, but most importantly, they're 
pretty much all from the area. They, they have lived the lives, walked the streets of the, of the neighborhoods that our children are coming from. And that gives so much credibility, even to the point where our teachers often know the parents of the other of the students and can call them up and have real talk. I mean, it's just tremendously powerful. The, the downside, though, is that uh, we are a little bit of a bubble. We're insular. And so we don't uh, get the benefit of of learning all those international best practices and ideas that are coming from other cities. And so what we've done is we've created intentional structures to bring that learning and training into our space. That's why we have half-day Fridays. Our teachers, our students leave at 1230, but our teachers stay, and we have intentional common planning time, intentional professional learning. Throughout the week, uh, teachers are receiving coaching and feedback on their instruction, on their approach to the conditions for learning. They're getting that feedback from their peer teachers, as well as from uh, an instructional coach whose full-time job is to do that work and to do it in a psychologically safe way. It's not about evaluation. That person doesn't evaluate. That person coaches and supports and, and tries to break down barriers. And so what happens is it's like we're all in quote unquote, graduate school on a daily basis. We don't, we don't leave to go to higher ed to learn how to teach better. We do the work together and bring in the expertise we need to push our own thinking. And that's, that, I think, is, is important and, and is powerful. And it has allowed our teachers to grow from being good to really excellent. And our kids need excellent in order to overcome the challenges that they've had in other schools. So much value in what you shared there the advantages and the disadvantages, starting with the disadvantage being it could be insular, right? That it's a bubble that blind spots could could happen, right? And so you need to put things into the system so that you enrich the perspectives and, and do the work um, so that you don't exist only in that bubble. But then, you know, the advantage, seeing the obstacle as the advantage, right? To grow your own people, what an opportunity to be able to say that, look at what we did. And I think leaders too often default to, if I have more money, more time, more staff, whatever, I could solve problem X, but give that up. You don't have those things. So look at to the people that you serve, equip them to level up. And then again, what a gift for your community to say, look at what we've accomplished together. So uh, again, appreciate what you shared there. You're so true. And Daniel, the other, the other thing is, is then be intentional about the structures uh, because we can't just say, you know, we want to fix this problem. We have to design the conditions by which that can happen. And, and uh, one of the things we also do is we have a teaching fellow to teacher to master teacher development process and pay scale where teachers can create intentional uh, leadership experiences that don't get them out of the classroom full-time. And that helps people see a pathway to the development for themselves that's still rooted in teaching and learning. Right. Well, just how you said uh, vision without implementation is hallucination. If you don't take action on the things you say you care about, you know, that that is a problem as well. So basically, you are creating the structure so that you support what guides your work and what you value. So oh, this is great stuff. Thank you, Jeremiah. I'd love to hear if you could put a message around the world for just a day on all school marquees, what would that message say? Well, given the times that we're that we're living in, but I think it's, it's true always, uh, I would put up this message. Education is liberation, but freedom is not justice. 
And Jeremiah, if you're building a school from the ground up, you're not limited by any resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build your dream school? And what would be your top three priorities? So I believe that the best schools don't require the best, the most amount of money. It's not that. That's not where you start from. I think you design a school by first rooting in place, rooting in community, finding the disenfranchised, the disconnected, the folks who, for whom the existing systems have not served. Learn from them. Enlist them in the design of the school. You're going to have a better result from that. And then be vulnerable enough to let everyone else craft the vision, craft the, the strategy. Don't try to do it yourself. And once you've got it, then I think is, is when you call on the money uh, to make that, to build that vision in a way that uh, inspires people to, to walk into the, into the building uh, every day um, excited. Jeremiah, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Of everything we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Out of everything that we've talked about, I think the most important thing that a ruckus maker has to remember is where the fire in their belly comes from. Hold on to that fire and don't let anything stop them from making the change that ignited that fire in the first place. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.